Two of the top commentators in compliance get together. They talk compliance, of course. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Two Gurus Talk Compliance, where I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Christy Grant Hart, as we talk compliance and review some of the other top commentators in compliance as well. We will consider all things compliance, corporate ethics, ESG governance, and whatever else is on our minds or on the minds of other experts in our field. Christy and I have a rollicking good time this week looking at a lawyer who used chat GPT for citations, a Vanity Fair piece about a New York Times piece about Elizabeth Holmes, the Gartner FCPA, enforcement action and trust, fear, lightning and compliance, and a variety of other topics. I know you'll enjoy this episode. Two Gurus Talk Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Welcome to the Two Gurus Talk Compliance Podcast with me, Christy Grant Hart. I am here with the one and only Tom Fox, and we are ready to talk all things compliance, corporate ethics, ESG governance, and whatever else is on our mind. This week, we're covering the SEC's recent enforcement actions, three tips for creating a good post-pandemic culture, how being grateful for not being struck by lightning relates to compliance, and what happens when your lawyer uses chat GBT for court filings. Spoiler alert, it goes horribly wrong. So, Tom, how has your week been? What is the most interesting development? So, uh, my week has been good, and we have some do have some interesting stories here, the chat GPT. It even got better after we decided to talk about it. So I'm it's sure we'll incorporate so that. But <laughs> my first article is an article in the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance entitled Mission and Goals of Racial Justice Initiative. And a group called As You Sow, which claims to be the nation's leading nonprofit and shareholder advocacy. I'm not your to know whether that's true or not, but they had an interesting article about racial justice initiative. And what interested me about this and workplace equity was that they've created a scorecard and it allows literally anyone to take a look at a variety of issues in human rights, in diversity and equity, workplace inclusion that are of interest and to, to a wide variety of stakeholders and see the status of each one of those. So they've just rolled this out. I'm going to be very intrigued to see how they use it and if they really do follow through. But anytime you can have a scorecard of corporate responses or corporate actions, I think it's great shareholders and other stakeholders to really know who they want to do business with. And I just have to say completely off this article, but I heard the greatest response to a snarky question about DEI I've ever heard. Yesterday, I was at my local Rotary Club luncheon, and we had our local new school superintendent. And some guy from the back said, what's this about DEI and Carmel? And the guy says, what did you say? And he says it again. And he goes, oh, you are Absolutely right. Equity is the number one job of every teacher, every principal, every administrator in this school district. And let me tell you why this is so personal to me. My son was born with a hearing defect. He had to have multiple surgeries. And when he started pre-K, he could not speak well enough to be understood. He had years of speech therapy 
so that he could communicate. So it was absolutely mandatory that he and every other child, whether it's special education or just special needs, gets that type of help in our public schools. So absolutely, we are 110% pro-equity in the Kerrville School District, and the whole room just went silent. It was the best answer I've ever heard. I love it. I love it. I do agree with you completely about the scorecards being interesting. The thing I liked about this article was it's looking at corporate responsibility for what they say. If you look, she was talking about after the George Floyd murders and how many organizations said that they were committed to DEI or they were committing a certain amount of money. They were looking at hiring people. And follow-up is critical in these kind of things because corporate statements are all well and good, but actually action is what we're looking for. And the fact that there is someone really paying attention to this and making a public review, I think is, is incredibly important and something that'll be very cool. I know a lot of organizations really pay attention to some of the scorecards relating to things like um, ESG or sustainability. So this is going to be an interesting one. And I think one that hopefully will get some more traction. All right. Shall we move to our FCPA related big article of the week? Absolutely. 100%. So I this is on tipsters. So I want to first talk about the Wall Street Journal's article on the record $279 million payout to a whistleblower in the Erickson FCPA matter. Uh, so the SEC issued an award that stemmed from the $1.1 billion settlement that was reached with those U.S. authorities in 2019, and that was for illegal payments in five different countries. It was the largest ever payment made in the SEC's Cash for Tips program. Um, and seriously, Tom, $279 million, that is that is serious money. And of course, as is customary and as important as well, the SEC did not name said tipster. Instead, it published a highly redacted statement about the whistleblower bringing to light facts that helped the agency's enforcement action. Other people want to get in on this, as you might imagine. So two other individuals separately applied for the whistleblower award, but their claims were denied because the SEC said the information brought forth by these two did not help the agency's enforcement action. So they are appealing, as you might imagine. I mean, look, this is a huge number. In 2022, I looked it up, the SEC awarded $470 million in the whistleblower payments in total, which is also a record. Uh, they have been climbing this year, but this is obviously, you know, this is a blockbuster. So Tom, I guess from the compliance perspective or the corporate compliance officer perspective, do you think more people are knowing about SEC and Dodd-Frank whistleblower awards uh, and what can compliance officers do to help avoid this whole regulatory arm, but actually to, to report internally before this gets out of control and $279 million could be on the line. So Lots of really interesting things in this matter, starting with what you started with, which is the number, obviously an eye popper. But I guess a couple of things struck me, Christy. Number one, this was not a U.S. whistleblower. And so it reemphasized the international nature of this award. We have good friends who are whistleblower attorneys and have whistleblower practices, and they are actively recruiting outside the United States. And companies need to understand that their compliance programs are not just about United States employees. They have to literally be on a worldwide basis. A second, in a little more, I don't want to say troubling vein, but uh, curious perhaps, is the lack of transparency in the whistleblower award program. Mm. And we had two, as you correctly noted, two additional claimants come forward. 
Um, there's just no transparency at all. And we have to trust that the SEC awarded, rewarded the right person in this case. But when you're certainly dealing with this amount of money, but I would argue when you're dealing with the public's money, mm. i.e. the government, there should be full transparency. And we should be able to see how our government is spending money, recognizing this is not our money, or the, not our money because it's not the government's money, but it's government paying out money. So I would, I would trend on the side of more transparency, which we don't have here. I don't know how Rather, the standard for review here seems to be uh, some heightened standard or heightened weight given to the agency. And basically, they have to show, uh, the claimants are going to have to show something beyond simply they were entitled in some gross error action by the SEC. So I don't know if the transparency in the whistleblower process will change. Obviously, the length of time, uh, this case was settled in 2019. Here we are, 2023, when this award is made. Why on earth did it take four years to make this award if we settled it in 2023? I have to assume it not include the little supplemental bump given Erickson for their violation of DPA, mm -hmm. but we don't know that either. I was so, wondering that, wondering yeah, whether that was actually where this came from with this award, given the timing. I don't know. Well, yeah, we just don't know. So why does it take four years to make an award? What's the process? Who reviews it? What are the procedural protections in place? And if you're a U.S. company, this has got to scare you because it's sort of like in the first weeks of the Russian invasion, we saw those yachts trying to get to non-U.S. jurisdictional territories. So I think compliance officers need to be cognizant of this. They need to demonstrate to their CEOs and senior management it's a real thing. I think one of the interesting studies that they've done. And I think the SEC actually puts out information on this most years is that every year so far that they've looked at it, whistleblowers report internally, get frustrated, and then go external. That has been the trend for all the time that they've been studying this. I wonder if these huge numbers will change that, or if it will continue to be people who tried to raise the flag, people paid no attention internally, or it went nowhere. And then they say, well, where else can I go to remedy this? Interesting to see if this kind of number starts to change that. Uh, that's a great point. Uh, the numbers I see, it's well over 90% of all whistleblowers whistleblow right. internally. Yep. And they are not given credence or for whatever reason. So absolutely. Uh, my next story is a relatively small FCPA enforcement action, but there's really another area I want to explore with you about this case. It involves Gartner, one of the, in my mind, premier companies for evaluating software a wide variety of software products. We have good friends that work with and for Gartner. As I said, relatively small FCPA enforcement action, 2.5 million in South Africa, 2015. Raising once again, you have to be very careful in South Africa, even though they've had a regime change. But here's what I really want to talk to you about. I have been over the years mildly offended by the actions of some companies, but this one really bothered me. And I think it bothered me, it's sort of like when you see your hero, you meet your heroes, and it mm. turns out they're SOBs, but they get things done. That's why they're, they're SOBs. And uh, this one really bothered me because I thought I just held Gartner in such esteem and the awards they give, they give, although sort of insignificant in terms of nothing more than a piece of paper, are so well thought of in a wide variety of businesses. 
not simply compliance, but to say, you know, your Gartner awarded, that means something. And so really tried to assess why I was so offended by this, but does it hurt Gartner in a way that is not monetary? Does it hurt their reputation for being literally one of the top evaluators, independent evaluators of software? Any any sense one way or the other, or this just to you is a FCPA enforcement action and evaluated as such? I want to talk about that trust issue. Every time we do a third-party program, the companies want to exclude the big four, right? Oh, we've always used the big four. We've always used the big four. One of those big four had an absolutely massive corruption issue in South Africa and same country, same issue. And we constantly pretend that this kind of malfeasance done by big and important auditing firms or by big and important firms like Gartner don't count and don't matter. And I think that there should be more scrutiny and more paying more attention to these kind of problems, that they are more systemic, even with places that we trust. So I do think that it's it's rattling. I really do. And I think that we should, frankly, require more of those places that we you know, trust to do the auditing, trust to do the reviews, trust to do, as you said, to give awards. I think that it is really troubling. And I think that the scheme itself, you know, using sales agents and subcontracted subcontractors to self-deal for a single source contract with the government, it, it is really disturbing and it's sad. And really makes you wonder, even within these institutions, you know, where is the compliance and the culture of compliance? If you're, you know, doing these kind of things that are supposed to be independent, is that in reality true at all? Right. Uh, so I can't really say why this one bothered me, but this one really bothered me. And, um, uh... I still haven't sorted out how I feel about it. I understand that. I really do. And it'll be interesting to see if, if and how they respond to that. I don't think that this was widely reported on or seen because of the number. You know, the 2.5 million is not a very big deal, especially considering the two, $279 million, just the whistleblower piece of the previous one we're talking about. So uh, yeah, I feel you though. I really do. Um, uh, you actually now, we're moving from trust to fear. So what does fear have to do with <laughs> compliance? Well, this article caught my eye because it has such a great title, which is, thank goodness we didn't get struck by lightning. And when I saw that this was in the compliance and ethics blog, I mean, talk about great clickbait, right? I definitely opened this one up. It comes from uh, Margaret Scavoda, who is not somebody I've followed very much, but is interesting. Um, so her piece begins essentially very entertainingly. And she says, you know, when it rains outside, people don't tend to get so terrified by the possibility of getting hit by lightning that they decide to cancel everything they're doing that day and stay inside and shelter and be oh, so terrified. And she likens this lightning response to compliance officers focusing on DOJ or OIG actions. The truth is the likelihood of being caught in the regulator's net, it's extremely small, right? much like the chances of getting struck by lightning. And because of that, many companies do gamble and take their chances with misbehavior because the likelihood of an investigation or penalties being leveraged against them is so small. And her argument is that compliance officers need to respond differently and focus on the good things that compliance is doing and really being vocal about how what they do benefits individuals within the company as well as the company itself. So looking at things like phishing emails and talking about how beneficial it is, but you're still in the negative, right? That you didn't end up with a giant data breach or the fact that they are stopping fraud because of the speak up hotline, things like that. Tom, I know 
I have a controversial opinion about fear that it's very beneficial and that it needs to be part of the conversation. Some people, including at conferences, have verbally told me I'm absolutely wrong. But I think when people, especially board members, have fiduciary duties, they do need to understand what's wrong. But there is a balance in that. So what do you think is appropriate? How much fear, how much uh, is don't get struck by lightning, but tell us how you're making the flowers grow? What do you think? So I try to advocate that effective compliance equates to more efficient business process, which equals greater ROI and greater profitability. So that's just the equation that that I use. Fear is good sometimes. Uh, but let me tell you the best story I heard about fear. I was with a new client visiting with a CEO and he, he told me what he wanted to do. And I said, well, if you do that, you might as well get fitted for an orange jumpsuit. And he looked at me and he said, wait a minute, you're the lawyer here. You go figure it out. And that was an incredibly valuable lesson for me because he was absolutely right. What he wanted to do was risky. Uh, it may or may not have been legally a violation, but what he was saying was, I want to take a high risk and I want you to come up with a high risk management strategy. And that is the job of the compliance officer. And that is the job of a lawyer. Now, if you're, you know, if they tell you they want to do something illegal, that's very different. But it's simply because a business person wants to take a high risk does not mean you shouldn't do it. It means you should assess that risk and put on in an appropriate level of risk management and then monitor your risk management strategy and improve as appropriate. And so that really was a valuable lesson to me because said, look, I hire you guys to figure it out, figure it out. And he's absolutely right. He was absolutely right. And so I went off and figured out a way and presented it to him. Yes, it was costly. Yes, it was time consuming, but he wanted to do it. So in his mind, it was a fair trade-off because he thought the risk had been assessed and then he was going to manage that risk. And that's what I think the government wants to see you do. Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. I, I like that point of view. So my next article comes to us from the corporate and enforcement blog over at NYU School of Law. And this is a law article by a lawyers from Davis Polk on recent sort of a summary of recent statements by the DOJ around uh, not simply corporate enforcement and compliance, but really national security. And that's the reason I picked this, Christy. Starting in December of 2021, with the Biden administration's statement on corruption, combating corruption, where they elevated the fight against corruption to a U.S. national security issue, the things that you and I have done for years are now national security issues. And when something becomes a national security issue, enforcement becomes much more focused, much more robust. Resources are put into place both for enforcement, but also for detection and prevention. And a wide variety of uh, other stakeholders who typically were not a part of the anti-corruption enforcement formal discussion became a part of it. For instance, the program specifically called out journalists and journalism as a force for fighting corruption in their reporting. Uh, for the first time, NATO was given a role in anti-corruption uh, prevention, detection, and enforcement. So there's... Lots of different initiatives they talk about here, including, as I mentioned, national security laws, obviously in sanctions, export controls, and AML, but also things that we do on a routine basis, risk assessments, due diligence, enhanced controls, testing your controls and your due diligence matters, 
on a continuous basis, cybercrime, crypto laundering, technology theft, intellectual property theft, actually training employees on national securities laws. I don't know about you, but I've never trained employees on national securities laws. No. <laughs> um, so I just want compliance professionals to understand the game has really changed. This is all public information. It's all public announcements. You and I talk about it from time to time. A lot of our colleagues talk about it from time to time, but I'm not sure there's really an awareness of, I think the underlying road under our feet has shifted and that a lot more scrutiny will be put on compliance professionals because of this elevation of a wide variety of clients' areas. Like I said, cyber, AML, export control, sanctions, and a corruption to a level they hadn't been elevated to before. I really, there's so much to unpack in this. We could spend a huge amount of time on it, but there was a couple of things I thought were really telling in this. One of them was, I don't think most companies consider themselves dealing with, to be dealing with national security. I mean, maybe if you're you know, some sort of a military manufacturer or something like that, okay. But as they pointed out, you know, British American Tobacco that recently had the violations and the settlement they were selling to the North Korean government or benefiting the North Korean military. And then, you know, concrete producer that benefited ISIS, right? They don't, concrete and tobacco are not industries that you would think of their compliance people considering national security issues. One of the things that kind of bothers me, because I don't have a lot of great answers for this, Tom, so maybe you do, was the statements from Miller, uh, who was saying that sanction screening software and policies targeted to sanction countries aren't sufficient to resolve sanctions-related risk. But what the heck do they want? I mean, if we've got screening, if we've got policies, if we've got follow-up, if we've got cancellation of contracts, what else do they think we can do? Well, I think there, Christy, he's referring to the this administration's great frustration that the Russian sanctions aren't as airtight as mm -hmm. the administration hoped. And so, or if you want to flip it perhaps the other way, think about the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. No Chinese company ships from Xinjiang to the United States anymore. They go yeah. through a Vietnam, they go through a Malaysia. And so these sort of transshipments, I think companies need to be more cognizant of that. The BAT imbroglio was so over the top that it wasn't very hard to unpack that. And I don't think BAT really tried to unpack it. But for the importer of cloth or linen, mm -hmm. I think they need to do additional scrutiny on where their stuff is coming from, even if it's coming from a country that is not sanctioned. So both on the export and the import side, I think that call was really the frustration against that Russia has been able to have some success in evading sanctions. And the Chinese are developing mechanisms to get around the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And I, I hadn't thought of it in that context. See, you always have interesting commentary. Dear listeners, Tom and I do not talk about our points of view before we get on this podcast. So this is actual real things that I'm interested in his thoughts and things that he's interested in mine, um, which we will shift gears now from enforcement to culture, right? So. There's a new book out called Culture Shock that is related to the aftermath of the pandemic in corporations. So this is a book by Gallup, and the article that I was reading about it points out three different tips that managers can use to improve the culture of the company and specifically in their teams. 
So the first is to involve your teams in scheduling when they'll be at the office. So I'm looking at doing a webinar for Navex in the next couple of weeks and huge proportion of the respondents to their survey, 93% still have hybrid work or people who come in sometimes, which is a giant number, right? So the first tip is to ask your employees to consider which tasks are best done when they're at home and which ones are suited to in-person work. And that's to help them feel like you care and you're paying attention to what they need to do and how they need to do it. And the second tip was to establish what the authors call smart and, and smart autonomy. So smart autonomy involves giving workers options like flexible start and end times, four-day work weeks, the ability to work at different locations. So really to have some control over their choices and make them again, feel like they are part of the decision-making process. Um, and lastly, this one surprised me. They want a once a week coaching habit, right? So for everyone that you manage, having an ongoing time scheduled to go through their goals and their priorities and strengths because employees value that feedback and want to feel connected to you. So Tom, I do the weekly calls with all of my direct reports and it takes so much time, but it is so important. I always say, if I get to your employee review and you're surprised by anything I said, then I am managing you badly because you should know what you're doing well and badly throughout the year, not at this one time. Uh, do any of those three tips surprise you? And how realistic do you think they are in improving corporate culture more broadly? Well, I will just start with, there's a reason I've worked for myself for 15 years. <laughs> uh, but these are the kinds of strategies. And the thing I appreciate about, appreciated about the article, these are specific actions you as a manager can do. This is going to be at little to no cost to you. I mean, I understand the time cost, but in terms of monetary cost to your company, absolutely none. And really struck me is sort of about well, several things you said, but it's all engagement and it's all listening. And so anytime you get that with your boss, I think you foster a greater culture. You foster a greater culture of togetherness, you of team, team spiritness, and hopefully a culture of doing business ethically and in compliance because you're having continuous feedback, but a lot of feedback and allowing a dialogue, I think is a great way to do this. One of the best things I ever heard was, I think literally in 2010, there was a guy named Leonard Shen and he was either became the CCO at American Express or he had just left it and gone somewhere else. And he said the first six months, he did a worldwide listening tour called it that. He just went around the world and listened to what people had to say and sort of saw that in this article. And I think it's a great way to um, uh, facilitate all of those things. And and then you kind of wrapped it up where I, you said, if you're surprised in your annual review, that's my fault. Yeah. So absolutely. Yes. Yep. So next up is a article from, uh, Navex on artificial intelligence, the next frontier of GRC management. And this, uh, I wanted to discuss this one because it took a look at this from a little bit different perspective, I thought. It wasn't how do you integrate uh, chat GPT or AI into your business. It basically said that unless you have the systems in place to utilize a tool such as this, meaning tech systems, not paper systems, you can't use AI or you can't use ChatGPT. And the 
consequence of that is competitive and that you will fall behind. If you're putting everything in a spreadsheet, you've got it all recorded, as Tom Fox would say, documented, 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 but it's not in a scannable, usable data analytics format that you can't look for outliers, you can't uh, see trends, you can't spot red flags, you can't spot anomalies. Any Through huge amounts of data, or as another friend of mine said, find patterns in raked leaves, Chat GPT or AI or machine learning are not going to be for you. If they're not going to be for you, I mean, you're basically using stone knives and tools and it's only going to get worse. So I had really never thought about AI and artificial intelligence in the context of you have to have the basics in place. So that's sort of point one. But I think we've talked about this at some length in other articles. AI is not a be-all, end-all. I mean, I'm talking about, about it being, to me, like Encyclopedia Britannica was when I was a teenager. It is a tool. It is a tool that employees can use, but it's allow you to do things faster. It may give you first drafts of things quicker, but the professional still has to oversee it. And if, even if you get a first draft of a contract, and no doubt you can you're still going to have to, you know, specify and make that contract specific to that deal or transaction or that client or customer, whatever it may be. So, um, uh, but I really had not thought about what you have to have in place to use AI and chat GPT and how far you're going to fall behind if you don't incorporate this. I mean, right now it's really cool, but at some point it's going to become, move from really cool to a must have. Yeah. I love this article. I thought that actually put tangible ideas in place because we constantly are hearing almost buzzword-esque data analytics, AI, et cetera, et cetera. But I really, I love their example of being able to use a large language model to uh, work with things like policy searches and policy management. So if you can get an AI ability to answer employee questions in real language, the way that they would ask them, as opposed to relying simply on keyword searches or God forbid, asking them to go find your conflicts of interest policy within the code somewhere, that that can be really, really beneficial. And I think that the more that we can consider real specific examples of how to use AI effectively in our programs, it's going to do nothing but good things for us. So, yeah. What about money and CCOs? What about money and CCOs? Um, I should have led with that one, right? <laughs> this is a great report. Who does not who does not love a good salary survey? And this one was a very good salary survey. So this was reported on by our good friend Matt Kelly at Radical Compliance. So he was reporting on a survey by the recruiting firm Barker Gilmore, which found that the average total compensation for compliance officers is running about 320,000 these days, 8% from last year's figures. Now, I want to be real clear on what the total compensation means. So that's base salary plus bonus plus uh, long-term investments, things like stock options or other types of um, intangibles that could be tangible at some point. Um, so the report has a lot of data. It separates by gender, how many direct reports a person has. And interestingly, and this is what Matt really wanted to talk about in his article, whether or not there was a law degree with the people in the compliance office. So the CCOs at law degrees, they 
with law degrees. They earn substantially more than those without. So at the CCO level, average total compensation at publicly traded companies averaged nearly 600,000, which sounds like a very big number to me. I haven't known many people in that world, but apparently there's lots more of them that have it. But sadly, their non-JD holding compatriots earned only only 350,000 total. So, I mean, that's a massive difference. It's, you know, 40%. And it gets more interesting when we talk about, and I'm using this in air quotes, prestige. Those holding JDs from the top 50 law schools saw 56% higher compensation than those with JDs from other schools. And if you work in big law, like I did at Gibson Dunn, your wages are 62% higher than if you did not. So Matt finishes this article by arguing that there are lots of great compliance professionals being shut out of the CCO ranks, or at least who are making significantly less than those who, in his words, had not had the foresight to take the LSAT at 22, the LSAT being the test that gets you into law school. Nevertheless, I think that we can't lose sight of the fact that 8% is 8% regardless of whether or not you have a law degree. And so I think that this is all incredibly interesting. And it's the first that I've seen the breakdown with the JD and the prestige degrees and whether if you've been in an AMLAW 100 firm and all of that. Um, And I'm hearing extremely mixed things about this market, Tom. I've got friends saying it's impossible. I've got friends looking for CCO roles that says there are only three of them in the whole world and they're all moving internally. And then I've got other market indicators that say, actually, this is going well and 8% and competitive is what we're doing. What do you think is happening in the market? So a couple of thoughts. One is, if you are a CCO at a U.S. public company or a Fortune 500 company, and you have to engage in a job search, expect a minimum of six months, yeah. realistically a year. It's just, one, it's going to take that long. Two, these are incredibly important positions, and companies are going to do excruciatingly lengthy due diligence to make sure they don't hire you know, someone who has to leave right away uh, because that can be a huge black eye. So one, the job searches, there are jobs out there. There are lots of jobs out there, but these are highly visible. And I think companies are becoming very sensitized to this position. But here's what I heard at a conference Tuesday. I was talking about the CCO certification Mm. and then the Delaware Court of Chantry case in McDonald's, which put created the duty of oversight for corporate officers, senior management, and then put the CCO as the only other corporate position to have visibility across the organization in addition to the CEO. Someone raised their hand and said, I just read Matt Kelly's article. Is this rise in salary due to the increased risk Hmm. for CCOs? And I thought, brilliant question. And I said, well, I think this was actually data from last year. So I don't think it incorporated that, but that was also interesting because if the position obviously got more difficult, but if the position became more risky, either from the CCO certification component or, you know, being sued in Delaware court by shareholders, what happens if you don't have DNO coverage? Because several people said, I don't know if I have covered under DNO coverage. So there's that to potentially think about. I think the salary uh, increase is really a factor of two things. One, coming out of the pandemic, we've seen a general increase, I think, in overall corporate salaries. But two, it, it shows the importance of this position. And please, Mr. and Mrs. Corporation, don't just go hire an ex-AUSA who's prosecuting <laughs> cases uh, unless they know something about compliance, because prosecutors are very good at prosecuting. 
They may be very good at doing investigations. They may be very good at negotiating with their former colleagues, but that doesn't mean they know how to run, how to design, create, and implement a compliance program. So if that's what you need, hire for that. If you are in the middle of an enforcement action, you may need an XDOJ or but hire for what you need as a company. I like it. Now, I love our last two are my, they're just always so much fun. So Tom, what, what did you pick for your last article you wanted to discuss? So I picked a Vanity Fair article entitled The New York Times Elizabeth Holmes Profile is Causing Drama in the Newsroom. Quote, what the hell happened here? End quote. And this is an article about a puff piece put out by the New York Times Sunday Magazine featuring Elizabeth Holmes when she was trying to get, or was on the Sunday business section, I should say, she was seeking to get her sentence reduced. And the author, one Amy Chazizek, uh, described her as an authentic and sympathetic person, a devoted mother who had been volunteering for a rape crisis hotline for the past year. She didn't seem like a hero or a villain. She seemed like most people somewhere in between. Her editor admitted that the reporter, Ms. Chosnick, got, quote, rolled, end quote. And there was a kind of a mini revolt in the New York Times newsroom over this. I thought that was fascinating because I read that piece and I, I just couldn't believe she's now moved from Elizabeth Holmes to Liz Holmes. And she's recovered, reformed, remediated in the error of her ways or all of the above or none of the above. I have to note, she has now reported to prison in my hometown of Bryan, Texas, making her the most famous person since Linda Lovelace left. You can remember that reference. So we don't have to meet famous people from Bryan. But here's what it made me think about, and here's what I wanted to ask you. I've personally known two fraudsters in my professional life, and both times I met them, I thought, oh, I really like this person. They are really slick. And I met them after they had been convicted, served time, gotten out, you know, paid their penalty or paid their dues to society and all of that. But I just thought, yeah, this, this person is really slick. And that's what I thought of when I read this puff piece, because it really was a puff piece. Well, she's not Elizabeth. She's Liz now. And she's, you know, you can see how she was able to hornswoggle uh, not just 80-year-old men like uh, Donald Schultz or Henry Kissinger, but some of the top businessmen in America. She's a very good-looking woman. She was very articulate, and everyone liked her. So it really made me think about that. And then the sort of compliance angle is the following. Used to be the conventional wisdom that 95% of the people in your corporation would do the right thing if they knew the rules and given training. And there was 5% or maybe 90%. 5% who you had to watch, but there were 5% who were just either narcissists, narcissists, narcissistic, <laughs> or something in their character where they basically said the rules don't apply to me. And um, so you can't really protect from one of those people if they are determined to engage in bribery and corruption. What you have to have is robust controls, rail guards that will prevent them from creating a pot of money from which to pay a bribe. But also that's after you've hired them. And this goes back to our a little bit of my prior discussion. Hiring has become so much more important. And for any 
at-risk position, and there I mean at-risk in your compliance risk analysis, I think you really need to put some scrutiny around who you hire. And I think you need to do more due diligence rather than less, because if someone's had multiple jobs, if someone's left multiple companies, there may be good reasons. I know that sort of business part of business has changed as opposed to when maybe you and I started in our legal careers, but you've got to weed those people out because once, uh, once somebody does something, a lion or a leopard doesn't change its spots. And once a leopard shows itself in the corporate world, I think that's how they're going to conduct themselves going forward. So to me, it really spoke to a compliance angle that we need to maybe rethink if it's true, there's some percentage of employees who are just amoral and they're going to do whatever they want to do to make their numbers. One, you definitely need to try to screen them out from hiring, but two, you have to have robust controls and guardrails around them so that they don't. So that that was really probably more than what the article said, but it really just brought up kind of all of that for me. I will say that I've never met Andy Fastow, but I've written about him a fair amount. And he was a CFO at Enron. And the first right. time I wrote about him, he actually emailed me and said, you know, I had the board's approval to do what I did. And this was after he had finished his prison sentence. He just never figured it out, never did anything wrong. Now, my, uh, my husband, when he started his career in sales of um, essentially government protected vehicles, and he said that they brought in, I can't remember the name of the guy, but the person in Catch Me If You Can, the movie. And he ah. came, uh, Frank Abigail, I think is that. Yes. And he came in and said, most of what I'm going to say is a lie. And Jonathan, ah. my husband, described it as the most fascinating, exciting, interesting, fabulous presentation ever because he was so charismatic and so likable. And you could absolutely see how we got away with all of this, frankly, on the basis of personality and smarts. The other thing in this article that I thought was a great compliance article angle was that John Carreyrou, who wrote Bad Blood, the book that exposed Theranos, and he had done the reporting that created the scandal that created her prison sentence, ultimately, right? Her conduct, but that brought it to the public. He had been hired by the New York Times, right? And so there's this like kerfuffle within the New York Times that they're trying to essentially try to decide whether or not which side are we going with? Is there the right kind of consideration about the fact that this guy is her enemy, essentially? And now you're publishing a good piece about her. And it's really, that's conflict. And I think that management of that's really important. So I don't know if they got it right, but it was really interesting to look at. So cool stuff. Shall we end with my favorite, my favorite article, not just of the week, but maybe the month, possibly the year. This is, this was sent to me by my sister, actually, because I've got one friend who just thinks the entire sky is falling with AI and chat GBT. And I would like to assure people that at least for lawyers and compliance folks, it is not. So this is a New York Times article called, Here's What Happens When Your Lawyer Uses Chat GPT. So it's a story of a man named Robert uh, Roberta Mata who sued Avianca Airlines. He claimed he was injured when a metal serving cart struck his knee during flight, and this was in 2019. So Avianca's lawyers asked the judge to throw out the case because it was so many years ago. And in response, Mr. Matta's attorney filed a 10-page brief citing more than a half dozen relevant court decisions to keep the case at the court. But then the trouble started. So the Avianca lawyers researching the brief couldn't find any 
of the cases that were cited or the quotations. So the judge called the lawyer in who created the brief to find out what was going on. And he eventually threw himself on the mercy of the court, stating that he had used chat GBT to do his legal research. So he said that he did not realize that the source revealed itself to be unreliable. No kidding. The lawyer amazingly had practiced for 30 years and was, in his words, and I'm quoting, unaware of the possibility that its content could be false. Quote. ChatBT had written its own legal argument, basically because it takes language from so many different sources. It populated its own analysis with names and facts from countless documents to come up with the perfect answer, which was, of course, nonsense. So the lawyer is awaiting his sanctions hearing, or maybe it's already happened and that's the update. I'm not sure. This is 100% worth reading because it's a three-page article with fabulous amounts of details. And look, ChatGBT may eventually come for us, but if we need any proof that it's not now, this article makes me feel better. What do you think, Tom? So this is one of these stories that if you had made it up, if you told me, I would have said you made that up. Nobody's that stupid. <laughs> well, turns out somebody was that stupid. There was a hearing today, and the headlines at least said that the judge skewered the lawyer. I don't know if any sanctions were leveled against the lawyer. And the uh, your your point, though, is absolutely take, should be taken, which is you may get a first draft of something, but you have to read it through and make sure it's right and just treat it as a first draft. And that means if you're a lawyer and cases are attached or citations included, you've got to look at those citations to make sure they're correct. Sloppy lawyering at its very best. And I suppose this was inevitable that some lawyer would try to pull this stunt. I still hold reverence for the court, the institution of the court. And I'm not quite sure where that's from, but you know we stand when the judge comes in and you don't stand because of the judge, you stand to honor the court. And that to me is, is an officer of the court. When I go into the courtroom and I have to tell the truth and um, that's this lawyer didn't, he didn't tell the truth. And I don't know what his sanction should be. He might need to put in a call to his malpractice carrier <laughs> just to put him on notice. There may be a claim coming, but you're, you're absolutely right. It points out, the dangers of relying on, not using, but relying on that GPT. And as a lawyer, I'm offended because something was written, the lawyer signed and the lawyer didn't check. And once, I know we've all done it, but had an associate or somebody write it for us. But when you put your, sign your signature on it, it's yours. And if there's a screw up in there, the judge rightly will skewer, skewer you. Well, I don't think this is the last of these kind of uh, articles that we're going to see. So maybe from a purient interest, I'm just sitting there watching to see what happens. But I think overall, we're going to get more of those. And Tom, we're going to talk about them when we get them, aren't we? Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us on The Two Gurus Talk Compliance. We look forward to talking to you next time. In the meantime, have a fabulous week. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Two Gurus Talk Compliance. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this as much as Christy and I did recording it and bringing it to you. If you have a question or article you would like Christy or I to look at for an upcoming episode, please email us or you could link to us uh, or send us an IM through LinkedIn. Two Gurus Talk Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.